0: Man, thank you, Dustin. Let me add again my word of welcome to all of you, especially if you're a first-time visitor. We're really glad that you're here. Returning visitor, glad you're here. Used to go here, just came back. We're glad you're here. Uh, Just wandered in, lost. You thought you were in a different church. We're glad you're here, too. Hope you stay. Um, We're um, excited to have you, and we're going to be studying God's Word. So if you would, take a copy of the Bible or turn on your Bible app and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, my name's Adam. I serve as pastor here in the interim period. Um, but we're so glad that you've come and our desire is to study God's word together. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13. This might be new to some of you, but we're actually going through the book of 2 Timothy verse by verse. Um, all of scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible says, and profitable for correction, instruction, and reproof. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. So I don't wanna pick and choose, because it's all good. And so we're gonna work verse by verse. We're in verses 8 through 13. Let me read this for us, and then I'll pray briefly once again. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves under the authority of your word. We come as beggars for bread, as sinners for grace. God, if there is any ounce of pride in our hearts, Lord, drive it away by the cross. Drive it away by your Holy Spirit. Lead us, God, into confession. Lead us into brokenness. Lead us into humility that, why, that we might emerge sanctified and courageous in our faith and deeper with deeper gospel roots god i don't know where each person is this morning but you do you know the pains you know the hurts you know the struggles you know the temptations you know the highs you know the lows so god almighty god by the power of your spirit would you minister to your people this morning as your word is preached in jesus name amen You might have heard of Paul Simon. Simon and Garfunkel. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, of course. Paul Simon, you may or may not know, is married to someone named Edie Brickell. And in 1988, Edie Brickell and her band had an album, and it came at a time in my life where I was interested in this album. It was an album called Shooting Rubber Bands at the Stars. And in the, And on the album, there was a song called Circle. And I remember hearing it in high school and just thinking these words were so meaningful because in the song Circle, she sings, I quit, I give up. Nothing's good enough for anybody else, it seems. I quit, I give up. And as an angsty teenager, I thought, yeah, I quit, I give up. Nothing's good enough for anybody else. And we all feel that way, don't we? Don't we all feel from time to time? just tired and overwhelmed and exhausted and ready to give up? And why shouldn't we? Life is hard. Just life is hard. It's a suffer fest. It's one hard thing after another. And then on top of that, you add following Jesus and fighting temptation and trying to serve and putting other people first and loving others and loving your enemies and forgiving your enemies. And my goodness... You just feel overwhelmed, and from time to time, if we're honest, don't we just sort of feel like, what's the point? I feel like giving up. Last week we saw that Paul talks about the Christian life like being a soldier, and being a farmer, and being an athlete, and we made the very sort of bottom-shelf obvious observation. This means following Jesus can be hard, And so sometimes as soldiers and farmers and athletes, those trying to discipline ourselves for godliness, we feel beat up and discouraged and we just want to give up. And you think, boy, do people just give up? Absolutely. You read the news, people that used to follow Jesus abandoned Jesus. You've all known somebody that back in college was on fire for Jesus and now they're not. Maybe they've deconverted, ex-evangelical, this is a fad, this is a trend, but it's nothing new. It's nothing new. Matter of fact, you remember in the book of 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among them are Phygellus and Hermogenes. All who are in Asia did what? Turned away from me. Abandoned Paul. So Paul is in prison and he's been abandoned by Phygellus and by, by Hermogenes and by everybody in Asia. And he's writing to Timothy and he's basically saying, what about you, Timothy? Are you next? You know, this reminds me of in John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching to a room full of people and he starts talking about his body and his blood. And all of a sudden, people start to trickle out. They start to trickle out. All of a sudden, the room is empty, except for 11, 12 people. And Jesus turns to him and says, what about you guys? you going to leave too? You can imagine that Paul is writing Timothy and thinking, you know, everybody else has abandoned me. Is Timothy next? I could be next. You could be next. So how is it that we are going to remain faithful when everybody else seems to be abandoning the gospel I mean, if you consider the facts as Timothy had them, you can sort of understand that giving up seems a little bit like a reasonable option. Because after all, where is Paul? Paul's in prison. So the apostle, the apostle of the church that Timothy is sort of under, is in jail. And he is regarded as a criminal. Matter of fact, look at verse 9 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. In our text, for which I'm suffering, Paul says, bound with chains as a criminal. You can imagine people saying, Timothy, abandon Paul. He's a criminal. Abandon the gospel. Everybody else is. You should too. I mean, after all, people don't believe this book anymore. And so Paul's writing this letter to Timothy because he loves Timothy and people are abandoning the gospel in mass. And Paul says, Timothy, what about you? Are you also going to throw in the towel? Paul says to Timothy and to us this morning that if you look at life from one perspective, you will want to give up and except for God's grace, you will. If you look at life from one perspective, you'll want to give up. After all, most people don't believe this stuff anymore, and those who do believe it, let's be honest, sometimes they don't treat us very nicely. Privately, we can struggle with temptation, and we can just think to ourselves, I am a failure. I don't feel close to the Lord, I don't feel like I'm growing, I don't seem to be making progress, look at me, look at you, look at us, and from that perspective, you might just want to call it a day. But our text is saying that's the wrong perspective the title of my message is perspective paul is saying if you want to go on when others give up if you want to remain faithful when others are faithless if you want to get out of discouragement and into hope you have to get your eyes off of yourself and onto jesus he is the right perspective if you look at him you will be encouraged. If you look at me or you or us, you are bound to be discouraged. And so perspective matters. Paul says that there is a truth that gives you the right perspective. And by the way, brothers and sisters, this is not just about being optimistic. Paul is telling us things that are true so when we suffer, when we are discouraged, when we are beaten down by life, When we have one eye on the door, we can keep following Jesus if we have the right perspective. So, what is the right perspective? Well, it's right here in the text. Number one, Jesus is victorious. That's the right perspective. Paul says the gospel hasn't changed. In 2 Timothy chapter 8, he begins remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Let me say that again. Remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David risen from the dead as preached in my gospel. Paul says the gospel hasn't changed. Your job might have changed. Your health might have changed. Your circumstances might have changed. Your relationships might have changed. Politics might change. The market might change. Global geopolitics will change But the gospel doesn't change. So Paul says you better not find your hope and your floor, your foundation in any of those other things. You better be rooted, grounded, built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That's the right foundation. That's the rock that Jesus says when the storms come, your house will stand strong. Everything else is what? Sand. Sand. So why does it matter that Jesus is the descendant of David? Why would Paul throw that in there? Well, you may or may not know as we come up upon the Advent season that Jesus fulfills conservatively 300 prophecies. Hundreds of years before Jesus is born, Jesus fulfills all of them. And so these prophecies are fulfilled. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And so Paul reminds us that God has kept his promises God sent the Messiah to bear our sins to become the final and ultimate sacrifice for sinners. So there need be no more sacrifice because Jesus bore your sin on the cross. Jesus said it is finished. Jesus died and rose again on the third day. He ascended from heaven where he reigns from whence he shall come, the Apostles' Creed says, to judge the living and the dead. That's true. Paul says that's the right perspective. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is alive. Let me quote another song for you. I, I, it's just sort of the theme of the day. In 2008, a Christian rapper, you might think, is there such a thing as Christian rap? There is. There's some good Christian rap. In 2008, there was a guy named Shy Lin. Anybody heard of Shy Lin? Great Christian rapper. He has a song called Jesus is Alive. Pretty straightforward song. And in the song... All he does is he talks about famous people that have died, and he just reminds us, they're dead, but Jesus is alive. I'm not going to rap for you this morning, but I am going to quote something for you. In the second chorus of the song, he says, Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead, but Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead dead. Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Paul says, remember that Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, is alive. God has done what he said he would do, and this is important because this means God will do all that he said he will do. God is trustworthy. His word is trustworthy. Paul is saying, if you focus on you, or me, or us, or this, you're bound to be discouraged. But if you focus on Jesus, there is hope, there is life, there is encouragement, because Jesus is alive. But listen, I understand you might be thinking, well, what does that do for me? What does that do for my marriage? What does that do for my job? What does that do for my bank account? What does Jesus's victory have to do with me. Well, it changes everything. It changes everything. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 in our text. Paul says, we shall live with him. Beloved, what this means is that Jesus's victory by faith becomes our victory. Jesus's victory becomes our victory. This does not mean you get to enjoy all of the victory in this life. Don't let the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers fool you But it does mean that everything Jesus achieved is ours by faith. And we will, when we are glorified with him, receive all of his inheritance. Because nothing of what we did and all of what he did. So what does that mean for your job, for your marriage, for your bank account, for your family conflict, for everything that's hard in life? It means that life won't always be the way that it is. You won't always have to endure what you're having endure. You won't always have the ache you have, the pain you have, the disease you have, the disability you have. It won't always be this way. Paul is reminding that this life is temporary, but the life to come is eternal, because Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, rose from the dead. So this means you've been bought, you've been purchased, you belong to Jesus. He's alive, and that means you're going to be alive With him forever. The Bible calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, as Jesus rose from the dead unto eternal life, so will you if you are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And by the way, if you're not, you can do that right now. You can settle in your heart that I'm going to follow this glorious, loving, faithful, sacrificial, resurrected Savior. So, the resurrection reminds us that we have a future. We have a future. Life is miserable when you think it's over, when you think this is as good as it's going to get. And studies show that people reach a certain point in life where they realize this is as rich as I'm going to get, as good looking as I'm going to get. It's all downhill from here. And then they despair. But Paul says this isn't the end. There's a life to come because Jesus rose from the dead. So you have a future. And look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. It's a glorious future. It's a glorious future. I mean, the Bible describes things like streets of gold, and mansions, and banquets. That's pretty great. You'll want to be there, and you'll be there if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So Paul is saying, don't give up. Have the right perspective. Jesus is risen. Number two, his word is powerful. His word is powerful. Paul says in verse 9, look at verse 9 with me. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The offspring of David has preached in my gospel for which I am suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Now remember, Paul's in a jail. You can imagine him sort of either writing this out or maybe dictating it to somebody who's writing it out. And you can imagine that on his leg is like a chain and he's looking at the chain that's connected to a wall wondering at any minute, are they going to come in and unceremoniously kill me and he's sort of with a smile on his face. I find this to be a little bit cheeky, ironic. He's saying, I'm bound, but Timothy, don't forget, the Word of God is not bound. The Word of God is not imprisoned. The Word of God is not limited. God is unbound. His Word is unbound. The Word is powerful. You might know the song by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, some of you know that. You didn't know the Edie Burkel song. You didn't know the Shai Lin song. But you might know a mighty fortress is our God. And if you're only going to know one of the three, that probably is the best one to know. But in a mighty fortress is our God, Luther writes, the body they may kill, but truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The word of God is not bound in the world. Jesus is alive and building his church You know, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look, I don't build the church. We don't build the church. Jesus is building the church. And no matter what you see on the news, Jesus is building his church and nothing is stopping him. Nothing is stopping him. And so, yes, people do abandon the faith, which just shows that they never had saving faith to begin with. But Jesus is building his church. Someone comes to faith every second of every day around the world. Someone right now in some hut is turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so Jesus is building his church, and this should encourage us that the word is not bound, the word is powerful. Paul says Jesus is building his church. Look at verse 10. He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may be. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why is Paul in prison? For preaching the gospel. And Paul says, Listen, now I'm in jail, but the reason I do what I do, Paul says, I endure all things. For what? For the sake of who? The elect. Paul says God has a people marked out before the dawn of time. Ephesians 1.4 says that before the foundation of the world, he chose to adopt us as children. Before you ever knew his name, before you could do anything good or bad, God chose to save a people. And so when we go out and preach the gospel, we can know that God has a people and he will draw them, and he will save them, and they will come to faith. Jesus is building his church, and Paul has confidence that God is sovereign. God is in control. Is there anything God can't do? Is there anyone God can't save? Nothing can stop God. So Paul says, I'll stay in chains as long as I need to. Because the gospel is not bound. The word is powerful. Jesus is alive. Jesus has a people. He purchased that people. He is saving that people. And we, beloved, we get to be a part of that. We are the people that God determined before the foundation of the earth to save. And there are others who have not yet come to faith. And we don't know who they are, so what do we do? We share the gospel indiscriminately. We share the gospel with anyone because we don't know who will come to faith, but when they do, we rejoice and we know that God did it and not us. That's Paul's confidence. That's our confidence. Don't give up. Have the right perspective. Jesus is alive and the Word is powerful. Number three, God is faithful. God is faithful. Look at verses 11 through 13. This contains what would be like a sort of early creed. In your Bible, these verses might be kind of separate or kind of off to the side. That's because Paul appears to be quoting what would have been like an early creed, something Christians would have said. And you and I both know history. Early Christians were persecuted, They were burned for their faith. They were crucified for their faith. They were speared for their faith. They were beheaded for their faith. And as they were going to die, this is probably the song that was on their lips. So let's read it together. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. These are promises that sustained people through the most difficult hardships imaginable. And these are the truths which will sustain you through the valleys and dark shadows through which you will have to walk. And so you want to root your life on these truths. This is the right perspective God is faithful. Now notice that these are all conditional sort of clauses. You notice the word if. If we have died with him. If we endure. If we deny him. If we are faithless. But all of this settles upon this wonderful statement. If we are faithless, God remains what? Faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, you can endure anything this world has to throw at you if you will root your life on the resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ. If his word is unleashed in your life, you can endure anything because God is faithful. His word is faithful. So this is important because we're able to, we're able to remain faithful because of God's word and because of God's faithfulness. But notice that it says, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we deny him, he will deny us. This means that it's important that you profess faith in Jesus Christ. This means that it's important that when you go through hardships in life, if you're hurt, be hurt. If you're broken, be broken. If you're angry, be angry. If you're discouraged, be discouraged. But don't deny Jesus. Don't turn your back on Jesus. And why would you? He's been nothing but loving, nothing but gracious, nothing but kind. He bore your sin. Look, in the hardships of life, you can shake your fist, but don't shake it at God because he's loved you. He's saved you. And even when you're faithless, what does he say? God remains faithful. So by the grace of God we won't deny him. God's people will not deny him. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I shall lose none of those that the Father has given me. We are in the hand of Jesus and Jesus is in the hand of the Father. We are preserved forever. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that we have received the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance And so if you belong to Jesus, he will not lose you, he will not abandon you, he will not disown you, but you as his child will continue to look to Jesus, trust in Jesus if you truly belong to Jesus. So if you look at those of us who are following Jesus, you're bound to be discouraged, but if you look at Jesus, you're bound to be encouraged, you're bound to be strengthened. Let me tell you a story about a conversion. Last week, we got to celebrate some conversions through baptism. And this morning, I met with one of our uh, church members, and they're going to be baptized November 26. So if you're interested in being baptized, come and see me. Because if you have never made a public profession of faith through baptism, we would love to talk to you about that. But let me tell you a story about a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was saved... On January 6th, 1850, let me tell you the story. He was 15 years old, and he went out to go to church. But there was a blizzard. And he was on his way to church, and the blizzard was so bad, he had to turn around. But as he was heading home, there was a little church that decided, even though there's a blizzard, we're not going to close. We're going to be open for business. And so young 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon walked in the door, in the middle of a blizzard. And there were, in his recollection, 12 to 15 people. Imagine walking into a church and there's 12 to 15 people and thinking, well, I'm glad I'm here. Spurgeon wasn't a believer. But he felt compelled to go to church that day. The blizzard was so bad, the pastor didn't even show up. And so Spurgeon says, some poor layman, a guy wearing rags, stood up and said, well, pastor's not here. So I'm just going to read some scripture and say a few things. So he stood up, and he looked out on the 12, 15 people, among whom was 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon. And he read Isaiah 45, which says, Look unto me, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And he was preaching, and he looked up at Spurgeon. And from the pulpit, from the pulpit, this guy who wasn't a preacher... Locked eyes with this young 15-year-old Spurgeon. And I'll let Spurgeon tell this story. He said, young man, you look miserable. Well, I did, Spurgeon said. I have not been accustomed to having remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit. However, it was a good blow struck. And the man from the pulpit said, you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey the text. But if you do obey the text, if you do turn to God and be saved, then he will save you. And then he said to the young Charles Spurgeon, young man, look to Jesus. And Charles Spurgeon did look to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon put his faith in Jesus as a 15-year-old in a small church open for business on a snowstorm when a guy who, to our knowledge, never preached another sermon in his life, preached one sermon during a snowstorm, And one 15-year-old got saved and that 15-year-old's name was Charles Spurgeon and that 15-year-old went on to have a ministry at the London Tabernacle through which millions have been saved. Why? Because Spurgeon? No. Because of that guy in the pulpit? No. Because Jesus is victorious. Because the Word is powerful. The Word is powerful and God is faithful. So this morning, if you're discouraged... This text encouraged us to get our eyes off of ourselves, fix them on Christ, and don't abandon a savior who has loved you so greatly. And if you've never looked to him, look to him now. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for forgiving sinners like us. Lord, I know that there's gotta be somebody here who's thinking, I've done too much, I've run too far, No way God would take me back. Would you remind them right now that you receive sinners? And we are all sinners in your sight, Lord. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Different temptations, different sins, but we're all equally guilty. So Lord, I pray that that the person who's making excuses would stop right now and they would trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they would cry out to him in the quiet of their heart, Save me, Jesus! And that you would give them the full assurance that having trusted in Jesus, they are forgiven both now and forever. And God, I pray that you'd remind us that we are ministers of this covenant. That all of us are ambassadors for Christ. We have a job to do. And that job is to look to Jesus, live for Jesus, and tell others about Jesus. God, when people hear of Calvary, I pray that they would think of you and your glory and your power and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.